I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be. <laughs> a church that has no empty pews, whose preacher never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deke, and none is proud, but all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies, or make complaints, or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still, we'll work and pray and plan to make our church the best we can. So that's a portion of a poem not written by Dr. Seuss. It reads that way, I know. By Dr. Phil Wingham called The Perfect Church. And we know that in this world there is no perfect church. Because there are no perfect Christians, there can be no perfect churches. Even the very first church, blessed and spirit-led as it was, and as often as it is held up to us idealistically as a model for churches today, had its share of problems. And we are grateful for the honesty of the gospel writers, um, that they didn't omit evidence of the human condition in their writing. Otherwise, we would probably be spending more of our time wondering what is wrong with us in that we sometimes struggle in church life while our predecessors did not. But in fact, they did. Every church has and every church will have problems. Every church has and will have conflict. The question is not if this will happen. The question is when, and more importantly, I guess, when a church encounters conflict, how will it respond. That is the crux of our text this morning in Acts chapter 6. Before we get there, let's pray one more time. Our Father, we turn to you in prayer so frequently because we are so needy and truly dependent upon you for everything that we need for those needs to be fulfilled. Lord, you have graciously made yourself known to us. And now as we open your word and seek to understand it, we pray that you might continue to do exactly that. Teach us what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian church in Jerusalem had grown in leaps and bounds. If you're jumping right in with us and haven't had the privilege of walking through these first five chapters of Acts, this Christian church in Jerusalem is on fire. Some estimate that by the time we get to this chapter in Acts, there are as many as 20,000 um, members or people joining this church. That's a lot of people. That is a big church, right? That is two and a half times the size of our town. Figure that out. That is a lot of people. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is bearing fruit. People are getting saved in great numbers. It's the kind of scenario that, that uh, one would or should hope for in any church. Disciples are being made. Great grace is on the people with great power. The sick are being 
healed, the demon-possessed are being delivered, the apostles are teaching in the temple, and even going now house to house to share this message of salvation in Jesus Christ. This message that they shared is what we call and what is known as the gospel. A savior has come. A sacrifice has been made once and for all to atone for our sins. And we now can be reconciled to God and the recipients of everlasting life. The sacrifice was Jesus who was killed for our sins but rose from the dead as the pledge that all who believe in him will rise also. The gospel is advancing. If that early church had had walls, they would have been blown out. And the picture we have then is of stupendous, marvelous, supernatural increase. The church is growing. And it is precisely this growth in numbers that lies behind something else that's growing in the church, like mold quietly multiplying in the corner of a basement. The apostles are beginning to get a whiff of something unpleasant among them, and it smells like resentment. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, Acts 6-1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists, as near as we can tell, are Greek-speaking Jews who have received the gospel. Their families could have been among those who were taken away at some point into some sort of exile, or maybe some Jewish people who had moved out of Israel but now have returned to Jerusalem. They share the same Christian faith, as the Hebrew-speaking converts, but they literally speak a different language. And it appears that this language difference is a barrier and a cause for neglect, which in the worst-case scenario would be discrimination based on it. In the best, at least it speaks to the difficulty of their being able to request help or it being effectively delivered to them. We just don't understand the language. What we do know with certainty, as the record states, is that while the church laudably carries on this biblical tradition of caring for widows, the Greek-speaking widows are being excluded. You see, taking care of everyone in this new, big, more diverse church is proving a tougher task than it was for the church in its infancy. The growth, which is desirable, is responsible for the conflict, which is not. But to be clear, a growing church is a good thing. Even if it brings headaches, even if it brings occasional heartaches, and Luke clearly sees the good in the church's expansion, a good that outweighs the bad, and over the course of his writing in Acts, he makes at least 10 references to the growth of the church in the positive, right? He celebrates these. It is the Lord's will and the Lord's work to add to his church. It is God's amazing grace and power that is responsible for a harvest of souls. The fact that more people present more problems, if you think about it, 
It's just the law of averages. It's going to happen. More people, more problems, because we're all flawed. You get a bunch of us imperfect people together, we're going to have more problems. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't get together, and that doesn't mean that the church shouldn't grow. Gospel growth is good, and there's no reason to stand in its way. Should we not desire to see souls saved and added to the kingdom of God? And yet at times it is the preservation of our own kingdoms in churches that discourages the growth that we ought to want to see. Perhaps the preservation of our own ways. I had a colleague in ministry who finished the course and has retired telling me about his first church out of seminary and how he came into this small church and it was a dying church like a lot of New England churches and he began preaching the gospel and when he shared with those people the story of Jesus that church began to grow and it grew week after week he thought maybe, he said, I don't know, I think I could have preached anything and those people would have come forward. They were so hungry to hear the gospel. The spirit was moving. The small church very soon is full. Full to overflowing. Full to the point where now they're having conversations about what are we going to do? Do we need to renovate some space? Do we need to make an addition? He said, I knew I was in trouble, though, one Sunday when I took to the pulpit and all the deacons were in the front row with their arms crossed. <laughs> the growth that he enjoyed and the growth that the Spirit was blessing that church with wasn't something that everybody enjoyed. Because that growth entailed change, and that growth meant certain people may not have the exact same power or influence. Some of you are nodding your heads. You've been there. You've seen that. And they ran him out of town. Growth is good, and it does sometimes introduce drama and misunderstandings and complaints. When news of the complaint reached the apostles, they listened. It's not always easy to hear complaints, and not all complaints, I suppose, are created equal. Some can be quite trivial. But oftentimes, if you're willing to listen to a complaint, you'll find that it presents an opportunity to get you some insight that you needed, that you don't have, an opportunity for you to change, an opportunity for a church to change, an opportunity to course correct. When the apostles heard the complaint of the Hellenist widows, they knew they had a decision to make. They could probably satisfy the complainers if they picked up some baskets and personally saw to it that all the widows in the church were fed. If they if they dialed up their Excel spreadsheet and they divided all the widows by 12 and each apostle took some responsibility for 
the widows in their particular region or district or who lived beside them, that would probably do the trick, right? The issue would be solved. And actually, not the Excel spreadsheet part, but the other part might have been what some expected them to do. Perhaps it was even suggested to them that they do this. But one thing we learn in how this complaint was handled is that the whole of it, the problem and the solution, was carefully thought through. Because, and I think you know this, unintended consequences are always part of the decisions that we make. That is true individually and perhaps even more so organizationally, that if you tweak one part, it's going to impact the whole in predictable ways, but also in unforeseen ways. What if the apostles had just jumped up and said, we'll do it? What if they had just jumped up to put the grease on the squeaky wheel? If they had done what so many pastors do, if they'd done what so many Christians do. When a need pops up and they say, I'll do it. That's probably what church members then and certainly some now would expect a pastor to do. But a pastor's job is not, I think you've probably read this in Ephesians 4, is not to do all the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if a pastor waits tables, what are the duties that he has would be compromised or remain undone? The consideration then we see when a need arises, a need arises that we could even meet, is not necessarily can I, but should I. The early church is experiencing gospel growth exactly because the apostles are being faithful to what Jesus told them to do. That is to be his witnesses. They are the ones uniquely equipped experientially and spiritually to carry off this task as they preach and as they teach and as they pray and perform miracles in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit, people are getting saved. Should they give all this up to wait on tables? Should they spend less time praying and teaching so they can spend more time delivering bread? Are they responsible to be the solution to this emerging conflict? That's how they saw this challenge. The complaint was a legitimate one. But solving it would require wisdom. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now this statement is not a declaration that serving is below the office of apostle. Because if you think about it, these men are servants. And they are serving. In fact, they are pouring themselves out day after day in the temple and going house to house <coughs> preaching and teaching. They are serving the Lord with their unique gifting. And many will serve the Lord eventually at the cost of their own lives. So we don't want to misconstrue what they're saying as if they are above the task of handing out goods. They're not saying that they're better than anybody. They know serving tables is necessary. They know that it is needed and that it is right, but for them it's not the best use of their time. 
Do you find that so often you and I must choose between what is good and what is best? When it, when it comes to the use of our time, what is good and what is best? We need wisdom in order to make those sorts of decisions. And the Bible teaches us that when we lack wisdom, we can just ask for it and God will give it to us without reproach, without upbraiding. If you are here today and you're struggling with that idea that I've got a couple of options in front of me, one of them's good and the other one's good, I don't know which one's best, pray and ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. These men know that waiting tables is not the role that God has called them to and not the role that God has uniquely equipped them for. Could they do it? Yes. Should they do it? No. The fencing of one's time and talents can be difficult, can't it? Especially as a Christian, especially as an open-hearted, warm-hearted, kind person who wants to do so much. But the apostles model for us here the importance of protecting biblical priorities. The easiest thing for them to have done would have just been say, we'll take care of it. We'll handle it. But that added responsibility of the benevolence ministry was not part of the apostles' work. It would have come at the cost of their divided attention and time spent in prayer. In fact, I can't speak for you, but I can for me. One of the first practices to go in a busy or overcrowded life is prayer. Once prayer is out the window, we're in a world of self self-sufficiency, self-determination. The apostles are not going to let that happen because they know that they are utterly dependent upon God for everything. And they must pray. Any good that they would see accomplished would come from the hand of God. They need them. And they're not going to stop praying. And as far as teaching and preaching, others might be able to do this, but Jesus had specifically told them to. So they couldn't give that up either. They have to obey the Lord. They couldn't compromise. Serving tables is not their ministry. But the fact that it is a biblical requirement to care for widows in need in the body means that it has to be somebody's ministry. They just had to figure out whose ministry it is. So they call a church meeting and they propose a solution. We can't do this, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. So we would call what's happening here, we give it a word, we'd call it an adjustment. I like to say, and it's not original to me, but I found it useful over the years, new information warrants new consideration. Do you ever hear that? That's a perfect, that's a perfect response to those who say we never did it that way before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, think times have changed, folks. Things have changed. And new information warrants new consideration. We have to make adjustments. And a healthy church is going to make constant adjustments because it is both an organization and an organism, right? It is dynamic. It is constantly changing, regularly adjusting its methods so that it doesn't have to compromise on its message. This adjustment, this proposal to the church 
is reminiscent of a change that has to take place in the life of one of Israel's great patriarchs. Moses had taken upon himself the care of all the people. He was a leader who was trying to do it all, and he saw no other way. But his father-in-law bluntly confronted him and said, Moses, what you're doing is not good. The point of Jethro's message was for Moses to delegate, to spread out the work of caring for the people in order that he could endure in ministry and the people could be satisfied. The same principle applies to churches today. A while ago, we enjoyed studying together Max Lucado's Outlive Your Life, in which we heard on a number of occasions, no one can do everything, everyone can do something. Do you remember that? No one can do everything, everyone can do something. So friend, let me ask you this. If you are a church member, what is your something that you are doing to strengthen this body? To strengthen and help this body. And I would go beyond asking that question. I would implore you, if you are a church member, would you please find your something? <laughs> we need your something. God has called you here and made you part of this in order to contribute your something to this body. And I promise you, if you will do that, you will be satisfied. God will be glorified. And his church will be edified. That is how he has designed it. Notice the apostles are not proposing to enlist just anyone to care for the widows here. I will never forget Pastor Scott Records, another one of my retired colleagues, saying how we have lowered the standard for people serving in the church to carbon-based life form. <laughs> and that's the church is always going to regret any move to fill positions with individuals who are not qualified for those positions. Always Regret that, especially in leadership. So what the apostles are proposing then is a new structure. A new structure for the church, uh, a second line of servant leaders. Now, and, and some of you are here this morning, I'm sure, not everyone appreciates structure in a church. And, and without a doubt, abuses of authority and dysfunction in church structures have brought you to some of these conclusions. Years ago, I had a conversation with a man, a Christian, whose church had just gone through some really tough times. And the conflict that they had was not handled in a winsome, biblical, or God-honoring way. Um, several of the members decided that they would leave the fellowship and they would start their own. And further, since they thought that the issues that the church was experiencing was a result of leadership that they would start a church, a body, with no leaders. Yeah. Um, they determined that they would be a body without a head. And I want to say it that way so that you see how silly it is for them to think of such a thing. Knowing how God loves his church and how, in Ephesians 4, 
he speaks of his leaders as gifts. As this man is explaining to me the experiment. <laughs> Don't you worry about it. Trust me. I raised three kids. They didn't act as good as yours do. They still don't, actually. <laughs> Is someone going to help her find a children's church, or does she know where to head? Thank Good. I would hate to think of someone wandering around in this labyrinth known as United Baptist Church. And she gets credit for trying. Amen. So this fellow... This is United This is United Baptist Church. You don't all have to leave to make sure she gets <laughs> to Children's Church. But this is who we are. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. All right, why don't you just all go? Let me close with a benediction. To, to an empty house. All right. So they want a church with no leaders. They want a body with no head. And again, the Lord has given us structure, so I'm getting antsy. So now I'm just like, well, tell me how's it going? And you know what he says to me without even really batting an eye? He very glibly replies, he said, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> I said, it's not going to work. No, it's, I can tell you already. It's been just a few months. Without leadership, without direction, the people are already drifting away. The people are already at each other. Governance and structure are part of God's design for his church. The situation on the ground in Jerusalem in Acts 6 is proof of the need. The church had to reorganize and adapt to its changing reality, and that is what it did. This account, by the way, is widely regarded as the beginning of the office of deacon. The noun deacon is not present in the text, but the verb diakono is from diakonos, to be an attendant, to be a waiter, to wait upon, to serve, to minister. This title, deacon, is going to get codified just a little bit later. The Apostle Paul will have a lot to say about the importance of deacons and the qualifications of both deacons and elders. In Philippians 1.1, we read about the two offices in the church, elder and deacon. But for now, these first deacons, they're really just the seven. And we have the beginnings of this office of deacon and also the introduction of what we now call congregationalism. I hope you notice that. Which is where, the, because that's our polity, this is where the congregation, the church, makes decisions for itself, gathers the body together, and comes up with answers. Rather than just name servers, the apostles probably could have done that. They just gather the church. And they basically say, we need seven men of good reputation, at least this is our, our idea. And if you like it, then you go ahead and choose them. And then what we will do is put the weight of our influence behind them and equip them for the ministry. They will have charge over this duty, over this business, the King James Version says. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. How would the church respond to this proposal? Would they rise to the task? Will they accept a new way of body life? Will they take on this responsibility? Will they take on this ownership? I think maybe they were fortunate to have been a fledgling church without a lot of institutional memory that would inspire some among them to utter those seven famous words of the dying church. We've never done it that way before. 
But in fact, this congregation is to be commended for its willingness to embrace change. The healthy church makes adjustments, friends. It changes as it grows to do its best to see that God is glorified and people's needs are met. Just as you and this church have done many times over the last 14 years that I've been blessed to be ministering with you, changing to make sure that God is glorified and people's needs are met. That is congregationalism at work. The solution proposed by the apostles and approved by the congregation was the best possible kind. It was a win-win. The work of the apostles will not be compromised and the needs of the widows will be cared for. The fellowship happily embraces these men to do this ministry. Not coincidentally, the fellowship chose men who have Greek names, who are um, no doubt equipped to bridge any language barrier there might have been. In other words, the congregation went above and beyond to try to take care of these ladies and to do the right thing. And then what does the Bible tell us what happened? Well, look at what happened. The apostles laid their hands on them. They blessed them. They commissioned them. And the word of God continued to increase. Verse 7, And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, what happens in a church when everybody's in their lane? Biblical priorities are protected. Biblical mandates are followed. The preaching and the teaching continue. The word spreads. The number of disciples increases greatly in a city. Inroads are made into ranks of all sorts of people in society, here even into the priesthood as the gospel was proclaimed and received. In other words, we have again a picture of Jesus building the church he loves despite its imperfections, just like he's doing here today, despite ours. Now, I want to close with just this one thought because, see, Luke, Luke's writing is beautiful and efficient. He takes seven verses to describe this particular internal threat to the church and its resolution. So he gets, it, gets all that done in seven verses. And because it's of its brevity, the account's brevity, we may not appreciate fully its gravity. It doesn't seem as dangerous of a situation, does it? At least not on its front as the rising threat of persecution that we've already talked about and we'll see more about as we keep going through the book. Or as having the apostles thrown in jail. But what was at stake in this moment, in this chapter of the church's life, was huge. It was unity. It was unity at stake. Matt Smethurst, in his introduction to Deacons, notes the great dangers hiding in this issue between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, writing, How our churches react to conflict can make all the difference in whether our gospel witness is obstructed or accelerated. Act 6 is a story of church conflict handled well. The seven weren't merely deployed to solve a food problem. Food was the occasion, sure. But it wasn't the deepest problem. The deepest problem was a sudden threat to church unity. How could the church 
win the war for souls if there was war within her walls. Unity was at stake. The thing in which the witness of the church hinges, according to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. The thing which the psalmist says is good and pleasant when people dwell in it. The thing which the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, that we should all be eager to maintain unity. And it was maintained. And it will be maintained when a group of believers lets Jesus be the head of the church and decides first and foremost that their goal is to please him. When your goal is to please Jesus and you let him be the head, the head of your life, the head of your family, the head of your church, that's where you find unity. And it is refreshing, don't you think, to read an account of successful peacemaking. Huh? Yes? Yes, it is. Because this is a story of reconciliation. Again, not a lot of detail, but you think it through. Two potential warring factions reconciled. And yet, we should not be surprised to see this happening in God's church, should we? Because Jesus himself is a prince of peace. And Jesus himself is the great reconciler. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 22. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, friend, Jesus came to not only reconcile us to God by atoning for our sins with his own life, but he came down, he came to knock the walls of hostility down everywhere. Okay? That we who know him and we who love him with the grace and the mercy that has been given to us by him and the power of the spirit who dwells in us and is conforming us to his image might show that same great grace and mercy in our dealings with others. And as much as it depends on us that we would live at peace with all, we should be, and in Christ we are able, like the apostles, and the church to acknowledge problems, to confront injustices, to resolve differences, and reach God-honoring solutions. That is the gospel applied. That is the gospel, not just the gospel words. 
That is the gospel in action. It is the gospel in deed.